Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a founder that is super accomplished. I mean, sold a couple of companies, you know, been through there, been been there, done it. So uh, I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Andrew. Andrew, Andrew from Cerebra Systems. Andrew Feldman, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So Andrew, let's just do a little bit of a walk through memory lane because uh, You've been, you know, quite around Stanford. So uh, born and raised there in the Stanford campus. I was born and raised on the Stanford campus. My parents were faculty, uh, grew up there, uh, went to Stanford as an undergrad and uh, later went back for business school. So how, how is it, because the, the campus there, I mean, it's just like everyone brainstorming ideas and, you know, it's all about like thinking about the future. So this is completely different to what you see like in, in other campus and in other universities. So what is, what is that experience really like? It, uh, first, it was a little different when, when I was there in 87 to 91. Uh, there was still a tremendous entrepreneurial focus. But when I go back now, it, it, it's astounding. I, I think uh, there's a, an excitement, uh, a passion, um, there's a, a belief that, that, that young entrepreneurs can do amazing things. And that, that permeates all aspect of, of the campus. And it's, it's really exciting to, to be a part of. It was exciting when I was there. And it was, you know, the, it, it, it was only at, at, at six and now it's at 11. Um, but when we go back and when we do recruiting or when I give talks there, I'm, I'm always sort of dazzled by the talent of the people and the passion and the drive to do interesting things. It's uh, really remarkable, the, the people that are coming from Stanford. So after you got the, after you did your undergrad at Stanford, you went at it with your PhD, and uh, I believe it didn't turn out as expected initially. What happened? It did not. I, I think one of the, the interesting things about one's career is when you look at it in retrospect, it always looks organized and like there was a plan. And wh when you're in it, it, it doesn't look that organized or like there's always a plan. And I think one of the challenges for communicating to young people how to build a career is that not to tell them that, that you always knew what you wanted. I, I thought I was going to be a professor. 
my parents are professors. I, I thought that was the track I would be on. Uh, I began working on my PhD. I, I took my qualifying exams. I decided that that, that really wasn't going to make me happy, that, that the life of, of writing academic papers uh, and being uh, in, a, in a university setting was, was not for me. And, and that was a big change. It was for my parents. It was the way I grew up. Um, but I came to the conclusion that just because my dad was a shoemaker d- didn't mean that being a shoemaker was going to make me happy. And uh, I gave that up and headed off to, to business school instead. And why business school? What triggered that? I, I'd always had, uh, you know, even when I was a little, I'd, I'd had tiny little companies. I had a, a surf and skate t-shirt company in high school. I, I'd always had a, an entrepreneurial bent. And even when I was working on my PhD, I was working on a PhD in organizational behavior. I've always loved uh, the challenges of, of organizations. Um, it, it seemed like uh, the right path for me. So let's talk about that moment where you, you know, there you met your, well, became your co-founders for your first, uh, you know, really big uh, breakthrough in business. And uh, you did a, a business plan there, which uh, amounted to, to something substantial. So, so tell us how how did this happen? We we did, and one of the great things about being in in the Bay Area is the sort of the, the number of ideas and of people who are passionate about ideas. Uh, one day, my housemates uh, came to me, and they weren't in in business school, and they were working at at Intel at the time. And they said, we're thinking of starting a company. And I said, well, maybe you should get a Stanford MBA to, to, to write you up a business plan. And they went away and came back and said, that's a good idea. And asked me if I knew anybody. And I, I recommended a couple of my friends. And those guys ended up writing a business plan for a competitor, not for, for my housemates. My housemates asked me if I wanted to do it. I was not very interested in networking. I, I thought it was plumbing. It, it was not a, an area I'd ever given any thought to. But over time, they convinced me, and I, I began to, to, to focus time and effort in my classwork uh, on what it would take to, to build a, a gigabit Ethernet networking company. And we ended up starting the company. Uh, I, I joined. I was the, the first non-engineer. Um, and a year and a half later, we sold it for $280 million. Wow. It was uh, an extraordinary adventure. It was early in uh, the rise of hardware in Silicon Valley. It, it was among the first of the, the switches and routers that drove the cost of communication to roughly zero. And how did you guys capitalize the business? We raised venture money. Uh, we, we went out and uh, raised uh, both strategic money and, and venture capital money, and it uh, was the, the first time that I'd uh, been out uh, as an entrepreneur looking for uh, for money from professional investors. And in the 90s, venture capital was not as uh, big of a thing as it is today. No, it uh, we, we ended up raising money from Sequoia, among others, but uh, it, it was definitely uh, a very different thing than than today. Today, there are lots of firms. There are lots of firms that specialize very early. Um, there were far fewer firms there. Uh, it uh, it was different. Got it. Got it. And I guess what what did trigger the um, you know the event of you guys saying, hey, you know what, 
let's let's actually go ahead and and close this deal and sell the business. Why? Um, I think selling a business is a very hard decision to make. I, I think uh, it is hard on a number of fronts. Um, it 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 haunts you as as a CEO. Um, it is the 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 end of a dream. It is the creation of if if it's a success of of wealth that is difficult to get your head around sometimes, and it, creation of wealth for your team. <clears throat> um, it, it is uh, when you sell a company, you you know it's no longer yours, and that the acquiring company will make decisions that are are not necessarily good for for you or your your you, the ideas that you work so hard to to create. And so uh, $280 million was a lot of money in, in 1998. Uh, it, it was uh, sort of the, the beaten path for networking companies. Got it. Because how old, how old were you, Andrew, at this point? I was 27. Wow. I mean, uh, what a what a nice uh, outcome for, for being 27 and, and being your first uh, real business. And and then you actually went with the acquirer. Was was that tough to to really see that you had to now report to someone else that your baby was being driven by someone else as well? How how was that experience for you? It uh, it was really challenging, and you know I, I wasn't the CEO of the company, and and I was just you know the head of product and, and marketing. But to to get a boss that is different and comes from a a different heritage. Uh, it was a real eye opener for me. Um, there was uh, to have all your meaningful experience, be it at a startup with 30 or 50 guys who uh, are interested in, in building extraordinary product in, in an environment where there's no politics, um, to, to join a company that uh, has thousands of people um, where there are, are, are political uh behaviors where uh it, it, it's it was very different at, at at every level and uh i decided very quickly that in the long run it probably wasn't for me got it and i believe that there was a spin off uh or a company that spun out of this so tell us about this we did we, we spun a company out of it called uh, riverstone and uh i ran marketing and business development there and we took that company public in late twenty, uh, late uh, uh, two thousand, and uh, that was an exciting effort to, to to go public. And this was also your your first time uh, taking a company public. So I mean, any anything or any insights from from this experience of uh, taking a company public? Being part of the leadership team when you when you take a company public is is exciting. Um, I think the, the being public uh, is profoundly different from being a, a big big startup. Um, uh, I, I think uh, the the amount of overhead uh, of regulatory overhead uh, put on on a company is is extraordinary. Um, the amount of controls required uh, are, are very different. And it, it was uh, a huge amount of learning. And what was Riverstone doing? What was the business model? 
we were building big, fast switches and routers, particularly for the, the metro environment. And so it was uh, a continuation of my work in the, in the data networking industry. And so we were building bigger and faster switches and routers. Got it. So why in 2003, why did you decide to, to, to switch gears and, and turn page? I was ready to be back at a smaller company, at a startup, and uh, there was a, a company that continued uh, on on the trajectory that I'd been thinking about in building bigger and faster switches and routers, and that was a company called Force 10. And I, I joined them to run all the products and marketing and business development, and uh, we, we went from you know, zero in sales to several hundred million run rate uh, over the next several years. So it was, uh, you know, you, you go from having no salesmen to having more than a hundred. Um, tremendous growth, exciting time. It was uh, really a, a huge amount of learning. We built some of the original Google infrastructure. Uh, we built some of the largest clusters and supercompute infrastructures in, in, in the world um, at that time. It was really uh, an exciting time, but over the, the three or four years I was there, I, I also saw sort of the maturation of networking and that it had become or was becoming uh, a less exciting, a less new, a less sort of entrepreneurial space. It was maturing. That the market had consolidated. Cisco had sort of come to consolidate and, and be a force. When I joined Yago in 1996, there were probably 20 or 30 networking companies, companies like Nortel Networks and Bay Networks and Synopsis and three and Threecom, uh, and they, they were Cabletron. There were large numbers of of networking companies, and by the time Force 10. Uh, was in full swing in 2005, 2006, it. it was mostly Cisco and a little bit of Juniper. And uh, it occurred to me that uh, very mature industries are, are probably not wh where I wanted to, to do entrepreneurship. And so I, I began thinking about uh, what was important to these large customers, uh, but that was no longer in the, the networking space. Got it. And obviously, this company was acquired for 700 million, you know, like which is a, a pretty impressive uh, amount. But I know that this led to to what would become one of your biggest, if not your your biggest exit uh, to date. Uh, so tell us, tell us about C C Micro and, and how how it happened. Sure. Well, one of one of the advantages of uh, being in the infrastructure business and having large customers is you, you get a chance to to see what is painful for your customers, in, in what areas are they struggling. And as I came to realize that the largest players were not struggling with networking, I realized they were struggling with the power consumed by their data center infrastructure. And I became fascinated with thinking about how one could invent technology that uh, used less energy per unit compute. And so uh, I started thinking about that problem, and I was talking to other entrepreneurs and other inventors, and 
was connected with a guy named Gary Lauterbach and uh, a former uh, employee of mine named Anil Rao. And we got together with an idea of Gary's that uh, he thought he could build a, a machine, a computer that used vastly less power per unit compute. I thought that was an idea worth pursuing. And so we we funded the company. Again, we went out for venture money and uh, began building C-Micro. We called it C-Micro because our, our idea was rather than large processors, which are, are power hungry, uh, we, we could use uh, a, a collection of much smaller, more power efficient processors, a, a sea of, uh, of smaller processors. So we called the company C-Micro. We got up and running. In fact, many of the people who are with me today uh, at, at Cerebra Systems were, were also on the team at, at C-Micro. And I think that that's probably like um, one of the key points, you know, like maybe of the culture that you guys were able to to build. And typically culture, you know, is is really built on difficult times. Uh, you know, like most of the, uh, you know, some of like the most incredible, like successful founders that I've interviewed, obviously it's all about the team that they had behind them, but certainly really difficult moments really created that bond between the team members and ultimately that resulted in a culture that was magical. So. Is there any moment perhaps for you guys that, that you don't mind sharing that, that really created, you know, like that bond between you guys? So I, I, I think uh, you're right. It's easy to build good culture and to be a person of high integrity when times are good. Right. It is everybody can only see your metal, your adherence to your principles. Uh, your integrity when 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 times are are really difficult, and uh, th- that that can come in any number of of different ways. And at C Micro, uh, we were raising money, our Series B, in the in the summer of uh, 2008, and that was one of the worst times in history to be to be raising money. The financial markets had collapsed. Bear Stearns had had blown up. Lehman Brothers had collapsed, and the limited partners in the venture firms, the place where the venture capitalists get their money, were telling the venture capitalists, don't make new investments because we don't want to put in money given the the uncertainty. And uh, that's an uncomfortable place to be when you need money. We had uh, achieved every milestone. We were under budget and ahead on our engineering schedule. And we couldn't raise money. And we did 40, then 50, then 60 different meetings uh, with venture capitalists. And we, we told the team, we said, we're really struggling to raise money. And uh, we don't know if uh, we're going to be able to fund this company to keep going, even though you guys have done everything that we asked of you, even though you've put in Herculean effort, even though you've, you've worked late nights and weekends and, and miss soccer games from your kids or dance recitals or piano recitals that we're not sure we're going to be able to, to keep funding the company. And I, I think the strategy of, of transparency, of telling that the team where we were and how much money we had in the bank, even when it was very small, uh, led them to trust us. And it's something I, I believe very strongly in. And 
when we did finally raise money, we, we raised it with uh, uh, an investor named Pierre Lamont, who at the time was at Kosla, but who'd been involved, ironically, uh, in investing in uh, Iago in, in the late 90s. And uh, he saw this as, as an opportunity. Uh, while other people were afraid to deploy money, he saw it as an opportunity. And uh, they put in money and we kept kept executing and later sold the company for $357 million. That's amazing. What, what do you think, what was the, the turning point there on the, on the financing? Was it really the, um, you know, like the, perhaps like, because you guys did like 60 or 70 pitches, was it like perhaps not, not leading to the right source that had the capital to deploy? Or was it maybe something on the narrative that was altered or, or what, what was missing? I think what was missing was an investor that, that understood there was tremendous opportunity while other people are afraid. And I think uh, the, the business of investing is very curious in that there, the most money is made when you're a contrarian, when you make a bet that's different than other people's. When you make a bet that's, that's the same as other people's, if you win, it's medium because there's lots of other bets being made in the space. But the big money is made when you make a bet that goes against the grain where there, there isn't lots of other competing companies and lots of other bets using the, uh, the same technological approach. And I found that the best investors are, are always seeking to be contrarians rather than to, to follow the pack. And do you think that that contrarian mentality can also be applied to the execution as an entrepreneur? Yeah, we, our, our, our challenge is different. Our challenge is to, to believe uh, so passionately about ourselves and our abilities and, and the abilities of our team and the power of the idea while at the same time listening and digesting thoughtful feedback, right? When I found entrepreneurs make mistakes, it's because we, uh, we, are, we, we, we drink our own Kool-Aid uh, so thoroughly that, that we miss the chance to, to get thoughtful feedback. The, the challenge, of course, is that the, the thoughtful feedback is often, the, the status quo is often born of uh, the lack of innovation. But sometimes there's still insight and wisdom there. And the, the really hard thing about uh, being passionate and driven is still being open to, to hearing uh, advice. You don't have to take it, but you have to think about it. You have to turn it over in your head and you have to um, contemplate deeply the, the the point being made. Yeah. And this is. This is a very important point, Andrew, just uh, just just to do a deep dive on that, because typically, especially the first time founders, they really get offended, you know, in many instances where they, when they receive back. Because you now ultimately, when you really learn the most is when people, you know, are telling you that things are not looking perfect, where people are telling you, congrats, this is amazing. There's nothing yeah. that you can do to improve. But I think that when you have some something that someone tells you, you know, about how to improve or about how to do things better, I find that, you know, with experience, founders, you know, really appreciate, you know, that type of, of feedback and, and honesty. So I guess for you as a, an entrepreneur, and obviously you've been at it, you know, for quite a while, how do you take feedback and how do you process it, you know, in order to implement it and optimize what you have in front of you? Well, first, I, I think you have to build a culture where people can disagree. And uh, 
we 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 have a saying that, that good ideas can come from from anywhere. They can they can come from an intern and they can come from the CTO. And the merit of the idea is not modulated by the seniority of the person. It's not modulated by the status or their salary. The idea stands alone and and needs to be explored on its own merits. And uh, that's true in engineering. And you want to create a culture where people can disagree, where they feel free to say, Andrew, I I think that's the wrong approach, or to ask you, why are we doing it this way? because uh, there's no monopoly on, on good ideas. I think at every level I, I look to for me personally is to surround myself with people who, who, uh, who, who I trust not to, to be a, a, a yes man. I, I think somebody who just says yes and, and runs with your ideas, that's not what you're looking for. I look for my board members when I build a board to, to push my thinking, to, uh, to be critical to be critical with empathy, right? To, to understand how hard it is to, to, to be an entrepreneur, to build, to be utterly consumed by a problem, but not to pat you on the back constantly, to, to point out things that, that need to be done better, to disagree with decisions you've made, while at the same time understanding that uh, yeah. the CEO needs to make the decision. And uh, it, it's a it's a hard balance, and it it takes trust and time. But if if as an entrepreneur, especially as a young entrepreneur, if nobody's giving you advice you've never heard of or never thought of, you're not learning. And uh, we we have to make it a uh, a priority every day to get better at our job because there's a, a tremendous amount of of pattern matching and recognition and uh, and sort of progress you make uh, over the years of, of doing this. And you, you make it by seeing more, by making mistakes, by thinking about your mistakes, and by getting and thinking about feedback that, that you wouldn't otherwise have, have bumped into. Yeah, no, makes, it makes total sense. And, and now, I mean, as you were saying, the company got acquired for $357 million. And then, you know, like this led you to uh, get the band together. So, uh, so what was the what was the next rodeo? Tell us about Cerebras. Well, first it, it it led me to to work for a little while at AMD, and then I, I took a little time off and spent some, spent some time with my wife and with my family. Um, but I, after about a, a year, I, I began to miss building things, and I I am I, um, uh, I missed being consumed by by building an organization. And by building product, and so I, I called Gary, uh, and I, I called some of the most extraordinary engineers that I work with in, in my career, and I, I said, uh, "Should we start thinking about about a new project?" And we began meeting. Uh, a venture capitalist loaned us their office in, in in the evenings, and we we began meeting two times a week, and then three times a week, and sifting through ideas. And uh, we we arrived at an idea around uh, building a a computer optimized for artificial intelligence, and it 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 arrived one day when Gary, like many of the great architects, asked a question. He just leaned back and and said, 
why would a, a graphics processing unit, which has been tuned over 20 years to push pixels to a monitor, why, why would it be good at AI work? And wouldn't that be serendipitous if this part, this machine had been tuned for decades for one type of work, if it was also very good at another type of work? And like, like many of the sort of insightful questions, this opened up work for us. We could examine the workload in artificial intelligence. We could ask ourselves, what does the artificial intelligence workload ask of the underlying hardware machine? And then we could ask ourselves what the graphics processing unit is good at and what it's not good at, and whether we came to believe we could build a better machine. And we, we did over the next four months, we, we came to believe that, that this was an extraordinarily interesting uh, area. And we raised a, a big Series A. We began calling our friends, the, the people we'd worked with, and began asking them about the best people they'd worked with. And uh, now have a little north of 200 people. Um, and we're still recruiting the same way. We're looking for extraordinary people. Um, that's where we are. Because how, how much capital have you guys raised, Andrew? More than 200 million. And I see that you've uh, picked great investors like Benchmark or Foundation Capital. I mean, we, we, here here you had the opportunity, Andrew, to, to people were throwing probably money at you after, you know, doing all these companies and finding all these incredible exits. So why do you choose the investors that you choose to work with? I, I chose uh, Benchmark and Foundation Capital and Eclipse. Uh, I chose Eclipse uh, because the same investor that had invested in us at uh, at C Micro in that very difficult round was now one of the founding partners at Eclipse. His name's Pierre Lamond, and he's an extraordinary investor. I think one of the the best in the industry for hardware. Uh, Benchmark is uh, an exceptional firm. Uh, they they are uh, classy and thoughtful. Uh, I thought there was an opportunity for me to continue to learn and for us to, to build uh, on their relationships that are at the absolute top of uh, the, the, the tech landscape. The guys at Foundation uh, are similarly a, a first-rate firm with deep understanding in, in uh, both deep tech and the challenges involved in uh, extraordinary projects. We, we, I feel it's really important that you, you match your investors' uh, risk tolerances with the, the risk tolerance of your project. And we were going to do a, a big hardware project. And if, uh, if the investors are primarily thinking about uh, little SaaS companies or apps, um, they are thinking about a different risk profile and a different time horizon. And so it was very important to me that uh, in my discussions with many of the investors, and we, we did have many, many choices, that we, we put together a consortium of investors that understood the challenges we were undertaking, who could bring value to me above and beyond uh, the money, that they had relationships. Uh, 
at the top of Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturer. We were introduced to them by by Pierre. We were introduced to the top at uh, at many potential customers by uh, by the guys at Benchmark. We were introduced to very interesting resources and vendors by the guys at Foundation who helped us a great deal. Um, the, the, I'm looking to, to build a, a collection and a board that, that helps us move the company forward, not just that, that is, is involved in governance. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. total sense. Obviously, that distribution, the access, the networks, I mean, all, all really important stuff as well. You know, when you're... Hugely important. Hugely important. Yeah. You're right. So I guess, uh, Andrew, you know, one of the questions that I typically ask the, the guests that come on the show is, I mean, you, you've done so many companies, you know, incredible exits, obviously with the ups and downs and all of that good stuff, you know, which is the entrepreneurial journey. If you had the opportunity, let's say, to, to go back in time, you know, and maybe you were, you know, seeing yourself with all of, with, with all these classmates, you know, from the MBA where you were like putting up the the business plan before maybe like launching, you know, that, that business, if you had the opportunity to speak with that younger Andrew, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to that younger self and why before launching a business? I think uh, I get the opportunity several times a year to, to go back to the Stanford Business School and uh, give a lecture. And I, I, I tell people that um, rigorous common sense is really rare and that you will be asked as, a, as an entrepreneur to evaluate situations that you'd never thought of. And, and that's one of the, the real exciting things about being an entrepreneur is that the, that the problems you face are not repetitive. They're different. And uh, even now with 20 or 30 years of experience, I'm, I'm still surprised and I'm challenged by problems. And that the, uh, the thing you carry with you uh, to, to attack these problems is your decision-making methodology and rigorous common sense. And there will be people who will talk quickly or use a, a, a lot of industry jargon. And uh, you don't need any of that. That that you can think about, and you have to explain clearly uh, to yourself and to your investors and to your employees why and how you came to a decision. And the decision ought to fit both with your uh, your morals, um, your sense of what's right, your sense of integrity. Um, but also your your view on how you're going to build your business. You need to explain to yourself and to your team how you're going to, to, to make customers happy, how you're going to satisfy a need. And the, the more complicated the, the description, uh, I think the more challenging it is. Uh, you, you have to explain exactly the, the problem you're solving how you're going to get your product into the hands of the customer and how they're going to use it to solve these problems. And uh, it, it sounds simple, but keeping it simple and keeping it clear and sort of avoiding complexity is enormously challenging. And I think um, 
when you talk to venture capitalists, and, and I spent a, a little time with some VCs as an entrepreneur in residence, the, the, the most confusing presentations are when entrepreneurs don't explain in simple terms who their customer is, why the customer is going to buy this product, uh, why they're in pain, and wh why this approach is going to succeed in making customers happy. And, and so those are sort of the, the things I, I try and share. Um, I think where I've made big mistakes, uh, I, I try and think about, in fact, a great piece of advice that I was given after uh, after C-Micro was one of my venture capitalists. In fact, Pierre Lamont told me, we went out to lunch, and he told me that uh, I should make a list of the biggest mistakes I made and think about what in my next company I'm going to do not to make them again. And uh, it was a great piece of advice. I did it while, while they were still fresh and while I could both bask in some of the glory of, of having succeeded and having created wealth for, for, for my team, but also with clear eyes, sort of write down the mistakes I made and the things I would do very differently the next time. So which one was at the top of the list, Andrew? Um, I moved too slowly to replace mediocre people. Um, I, there were a class of, of engineers who were team players who were good people, who tried hard, um, but weren't good enough at, at the task assigned. And I waited too long in the project to move them. And what was the, what was, what was the consequence or what was the impact? The consequences is they're drowning and your project gets delayed and the other engineers can see it clearly. And you, as a leader, lose credibility when you don't take action, when others clearly see what the problem is. One of my board members, Mark Leslie, once gave a, a great piece of advice. He said, Andrew, your engineers know what's wrong in your organization. Y your job is to pull them and find out what it is. If you wait too long and they know what's wrong with what's going wrong and you don't fix it, you lose credibility. And that was true. Um, that was one of the mistakes I made. I, I, I think, uh, I think when you look back and at your first role time as a CEO, there there are many mistakes I made. I I think I could have managed my board better. I I think I was too slow to hire some really important senior level people. Um, uh, I. Uh, the, the list of mistakes I made was is, is large, um, but I I was once given some advice where someone said, Andrew, it's going to take you about 10 years to get 10 years of experience. And he gave me that advice when I was 27 or 28, and I thought it was stupid advice. I thought it was an old person who was giving me old advice. And the truth is, 10 years later, I knew a great deal more. <laughs> <laughs> That's just the truth. Yeah, no, I hear you. And that what, what our job is for, for the younger entrepreneurs is to sort of suck the marrow out of your experiences, to turn them over in your mind, to continue to be a student of, of entrepreneurship, to learn constantly from the decisions you make. They don't always come out 
right or wrong. Many of the decisions we make bring right and wrong with them, right? They're trade-offs, like engineering trade-offs. You are choosing one set of pros um, and living with one set of cons. And turning that over in your head again and again about, did you do everything you can to wring out all the pros from that decision and mitigate all your cons? Could you have organized your, your thinking, your team, your, your engineering resources uh, to more aggressively attack what you're good at? Um, that, that's the stuff that, that you think about every day. And then when you get some distance from it, you have a chance to think about, did, did, I, did I get the forest right? I was in the trees every day. But w- w- was I thinking about sort of forestry? as opposed to, to, to trees. So those are some of what what I've come to, to learn and think about. Well, that's, a, that's very profound and, and very powerful, Andrew. So I guess for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? I'm on LinkedIn, and my, uh, my email address, my personal email address is just my first name, my middle initial. And my last name at Gmail, that's Andrew, D for David, Feldman at gmail.com. You're welcome to reach out to me via LinkedIn or or via uh, my personal email. Uh, I think the final thing I, I would say is that I think being CEO of a startup or being a founder is, is a pressure test on your soul. Every day, uh, there are a stream of people who are coming into your office telling you what's broken. Nobody comes in and says, hey, 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 Andrew, this was a great day. Uh, we solved this problem and we solved this problem and this new guy you hired is awesome. Nobody says that. What, what they come in with is this litany of problems. And many of the problems you already know are problems. And to, to each of those, you need to listen carefully. You need to try, to try not to be grumpy. You need to think about when you're going to fix those problems. Um, and then right after this litany of problems, you got to talk to a customer and be excited about your project. And <laughs> you, you have to you talk to them and, and be passionate about the problems it solves all the while knowing that you've got all these challenges in engineering that have yet to be solved. And, and, and you have to, I think those are, uh, that's what I think surprises people most about being a founder, being a CEO to start up. Yeah. Is, is that absolutely andrew well andrew thank you so so much for being on the dealmaker show it has been an honor having you well th- thank you so much and to, to all your audience i wish you guys good luck it's uh it, it's a great adventure and I, I i wish you happy sailings if you like the show make sure that you hit that subscribe button if you could leave a review as well that would be fantastic and if you got any value either from this episode or from the show itself Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.